0: HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
1: To Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right brain poets, and everyone in between. All with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Cheers, boys. Yeah. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, Jamie. Thank you for having you, bud. Thank you for, yeah, for thank being here.
2: Yeah, hard to think of a more fitting <sighs> topic than financial history for the last year of the year. And the decade.
3: I got bubbly going today, boys. Got a little bit of Prosecco to celebrate the year roll. I'm a, a Mr. Fancy Pants today
1: in well, honor is of last one of the year. I guess it is. Right? Yeah,
3: this is the, this is the last riffs because next time it's Christmas and then New Year's. I mean, I'll do one on New Year's if you want to do one on New Year's. I'm down. I'm down to do it. Right.
1: I like the idea. Of the All way. right. All
3: right. We got a really cool guest too. I love uh, love Jamie and uh, probably the youngest looking historian ever, <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry. The father time, will take care of that. We'll have a far-ranging, wide, far wide-ranging conversation today as usual. None of this is financial advice. If you want that, go to Competent Professionals and uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over. Uh, Jamie, maybe you take a moment and introduce yourself. You'll do a better job than us and uh, give us a little bit about your background.
4: Yeah, so uh I'm a kind of self-proclaimed history nerd, specifically financial history. Um a day job outside of being a nerd is a I'm an associate at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, which is a quantitative long-only equity firm based out of Stamford, Connecticut. But the reason I'm kind of here today is I was a history major in college and I graduated from King's College London in 2017 and when I came back to the States I got a job in asset management, and I kind of joined this weird Twitter sphere that we're all involved in, you know, finance Twitter. But I noticed that there are a lot of people putting out content um, similar to what we're doing today. And a lot of people were writing. And after I graduated, I didn't have really a reason anymore to still be writing essays and articles, which is what I did nonstop for three years for my degree. And so I figured, you know, maybe I'll put out like a five-part series or something on interesting characters or moments in financial history, and I'll see if anyone is interested in that. To my total surprise, people were interested in it. (laughs) It seemed pretty niche. I was not expecting that many people to read it. And for the last two years now, I've just kind of been doing more and more as I continue to figure out what people like to learn and how they learn about financial history. And it's been crazy. Um, I've been very fortunate to find a, a niche that other people weren't already covering, and it was one that played to my, you know, kind of niche set of skills, which is enjoying digging through archives and uh, writing about it.
3: What do you say, kind of, chief, of, the chief history officer
2: <laughs> of, uh,
3: of Louisiana? Uh, and when you not say financial history, it, go ahead.
2: So, I was just going to ask, uh, how far back does it go when you're actually thinking about? some form of properly organized uh, finance?
4: Well, there's like, I mean, again, it's there's some kind of aspects of that, which is up to interpretation. Um, I mean, the first kind of like modern stock exchange was in Amsterdam and that opened in 1602, I believe. Um, It might've been 1609. One of those dates is when the East India Company was founded and the other one is when the stock exchange opened. But there are still some examples Um, Actually, Mike Green, who I know you guys have had on, he sent me an article recently. So now every time I say this, he's in the back of my mind, like telling me that that it's not true. But some historians argue that there was a form of a stock exchange in ancient Rome, where shares of these like Roman tax kind of corporations that were basically outside government contractors that collected all the empire's tax revenues. There's some evidence of shares of these corporations trading in the Roman forum, then other historians say that's not true. And it's like a misinterpretation of Latin text, but theoretically it could go back to ancient Rome.
2: I Uh, thought I remember seeing you cite a tablet of ancient Mesopotamia.
4: Yeah, that's true. too. I I guess I was thinking more like kind of stocks and investing, but yeah, there's a ton of stuff in ancient Mesopotamia. The tablet you're referring to is like early financial planning tool. Um, I call it like the first FinTech platform, cause it's literally a tablet. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that was a sure. tool that was forecasting the, uh, growth of a herd. It's a different kind of herd of cattle, different asset, but same concepts, uh, from like 2100 BC.
2: Right.
1: That's fascinating. But, I mean, let me, so what I've been curious is I've seen your career develop quite quickly, I mean, I think we met at the March for the Fallen three years ago. Yeah. I think. Um, and then, very quickly, you you created that uh, that connection with all the major Fintwit people, and and you kind of went off like a rocket. <laughs> um, as as you developed into your career of chief chief historical offer officer, what is it that that you think uh, the O'Shaughnessy team wants to wants people to get out of your content? Because you know you're teaching history, you're you're putting it out there. What is your goal? What What is the the overarching mission of putting that out there in terms of investment? Or is it just pure entertainment?
4: Um, well, for me, that's it, it, like a, a blend because it's entertaining to me, whatever I'm writing about related to history. But
1: hmm.
4: with OSAM, I mean, I'm writing a lot outside of just history. Obviously, I particularly love writing about financial history and figuring out a way to kind of mix that with our actual research content. But in general... I think the value of a liberal arts degree or a history degree is really all you're doing for your entire degree is taking a ton of information going through it synthesizing what's important and like distilling it down into your own argument and narrative that you're hoping to persuade someone to your point of view and so really you're just swapping out like in at osam i'm just swapping out the historical sources i was using in college for Kind of more wonky data and stuff, and factire, factor decile spreads instead of you know primary sources from the 18th century. Um, and so at OSAM, it's a lot of just using the writing muscle more than financial history. But for the history stuff, I think it's helpful, especially at a quant firm where I don't know with fundamental managers. Like in my first job, it was uh, I was working at an institutional pension consultant and. We were having manager meetings all the time because we were doing the due diligence on them. And when you're meeting with a fundamental manager, a typical discretionary manager, and they have stories for all the stocks in their portfolio, it's kind of easier to be convinced by them or persuaded why a stock is doing X, Y, or Z, like why their performance is down or up, what have you. But for a quant, it's, you know... To other quants and people who are into that kind of stuff, if you show them all your data, they they can make sense of that. But when you have a client whose portfolio is down and you know lagging the benchmark, and then you just show them a bunch of like decile spreads, it's not as (laughs) convincing. There needs like just even if you're trying to win over a prospect or show why your process is powerful and leads to alpha over time, kind of putting stuff in perspective and the way I do that is through history is often helpful. And like last year I did a series called the factor archives where I looked at like the history of factor or value investing. Um, they want shareholder yield and just looking at like the first dividends and the East India company um, and how even back then dividends were kind of associated with investors at that time, they associated it with good share, uh, good management, let alone just like we're receiving cash, but, That's what underpins our use of shareholder yield today. So just kind of like putting all that into context is helpful.
3: Very neat. That's really great. When you think back through history, Jamie, what? so everyone talks about the first stock exchange. And um, I kind of actually wonder about, I I would assume, so I'm going to make some assumptions and throw them at you and you can correct them all. I'm mean, going to assume, generally speaking, the first markets that would have existed would have been more commodity related. So, you know, grains, rice, something like that. Um, evolving, when did they evolve? Do you know when they evolved more to, to incorporate businesses or sort of discounted cash flow type assets? And then, an our next question is when did government bonds become something that existed? Um, and, and, when did the risk free rate sort of the risk free rate change the calculations i guess if even you know it's an extension of the cash flow question right when what was when there were cash flow assets how would how did they discount those in in times before they had a potential risk free rate when did when did governments provide bonds in the context of risk free rate and have you got any insights there i, I always i've always wondered about that and I, I i just don't know
4: yeah so i can i can answer some of those and I can point you in the direction of papers that will give you better answers. <laughs> um, I know the papers offhand, but so in terms of commodities exchanges, those I know in Asia there was the like, Dojima rice exchange, and I don't know when that was, but like way earlier than the stock exchange. And I know that like, I want to say that was like 1200s or 1100s. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm wrong. Um, we're fast but, and
3: loose here with the facts, just throw them up. <laughs> We can back them in the show
0: notes.
4: In Amsterdam, well, actually in Antwerp, um, there was the first like kind of legitimate commodities exchange, and that was in the 1500s. So that preceded the Amsterdam Stock Exchange by 100 or 200 years. And in terms of government bonds, the first, I think the first kind of legitimate government bond issuance that we would recognize in some form, I mean, still very different, um, but was from, I want to say, 12th century Venice is Venice or Genoa, but somewhere in Italy in like the 12th or 13th century, I want to say. Um, And that was also the same time as like the Medici's and all those those famous super families uh, were in existence. And then for like more modern debt though, I would say in the 1690s was when like the bank of England was founded. And that was occurring at a time where there was a, kind of crazy tech bubble going on, if you can believe it, in the 1690s. Um, and in this course, I just launched a professor called Anne Murphy from the University of Hertfordshire. She gives a lecture on this bubble and the creation of kind of first traded government debt. And the Bank of England, the bubble kind of started because there was a treasure hunt, which sounds crazy, but there's a treasure hunt. And the way it was financed was through a joint stock company. So these, this small group of investors in London financed this guy's voyage who had basically heard for a long time there was a sunken Spanish ship that had been sailing back from somewhere and it had a ton of gold and jewels on it and it sunk. And he had heard people on the docks talk about it. And I guess finally he was like, screw it, I'm going to go actually see if this is there. And so these financers financed his ship, cargo, et cetera, to fund the journey. And he found it. And... It led to, I think they found like 36 tons of treasure, which is just like, can't even really picture how much that is. And the investors um, who backed his journey made like 10,000% returns. And when word of that spread, there was this boom in diving technology companies, which were a bunch of new kind of, Joint stock companies, um, because people had seen, oh, you can form a company this way and look how successful it was. Then there's just this boom in joint stock companies. But particularly for these diving engine technology companies that would let you uh, hunt for treasure longer by like
1: a couple of two uh, by fours and a piece of glass. Yeah,
4: essentially, there were these weird kind of diving apparatuses that would let you breathe longer underwater. And it's just a very simple thesis of if you can breathe underwater longer, you can search for treasure longer, which means you have a better chance of finding treasure. (laughs) And um, none of them ever found treasure. They're all unsuccessful. But this was occurring at the time when the British had just finished, I think, the seven years, seven or nine years war with France. And so they had a ton of debt and they needed to kind of refinance and take care of these like outstanding debt they had to pay. And so rates were lowered. And then when all the speculation occurred, then the Bank of England kind of saw this mania occurring and realized that if they offered slightly higher yields, then they could get a ton of money from these investors. And so the Bank of England set up, I think it was called literally like the Millionaires, the Millionaire Fund or something but essentially it was a bond offering. And this is like the bank of England first came into existence and started issuing debt. And a lot of those investors that were going crazy for these technology stocks pivoted towards this higher yielding. Um, you, you
1: said debt. that was 1690? Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I've seen charts go back that far for the, uh, for UK guilt. Uh, yeah. Fast
3: forward 500 years and you got SPACs. Boom. Exactly. <laughs> And I can't remember. There was more That's questions over the last ones. Uh, no, that was it. It was it was okay. that you know commodities over to sort of the cash flow assets and then and then bonds. When did we see sort of government bonds manifest in the first time? And then really was when did we start to see, if you know, the sort of the integration of government bonds as a comparison asset, I guess it is. Like assets today compete against each other. There, there's a the, you know, discounted cash flow links, but is there any any idea there? I mean, obviously, I actually forgot about the need for, for civilization to have war, which always creates the opportunity for some debt and the, and the spoils of war. Uh, but any any kind of linkages there that, that you can point to? Or
4: yeah. So, um, yeah, like almost every bubble in history is preceded by an expensive war. I mean, it happens again in the 1720s, in the South Sea bubble, the 1820s with the Napoleonic Wars, and just like so on. It's always... Related, um, mm-hmm. but you're right that in 1720, I don't know how much you can really read into it because it's South Sea Mania at the time. But there was evidence of from that point up until like the late 19th century, investors largely viewed stocks as kind of just a riskier form of bond, and the main comparison was comparing the dividend yield and the corporate bond yield or bond yield on government um, bonds, consoles in the case of the UK. And it wasn't until I think like the 1920s or so that people realized and kind of start not realize, but started giving more credence to the fact that with stocks, you actually had capital gains potential and not just focusing on the um, dividend yield. But you're totally right that for Hundreds of years, the main kind of comparison was looking at the dividend yield available on whatever corporate stock you were looking at versus the government yield or even the corporate bond um, for that same company. And it was in the US in the 20s. I think Irving Fisher wrote a book, can't remember the name, but he started focusing on earnings and the power of earnings. And in the US, the quality of information on financial statements was so much higher than in England that. Uh, price-to-earnings and other earnings-based metrics started to become much more widely used. While in the UK, everything was almost dividend-based and much more focused on that up until even like the 1950s or 60s when some changes in financial disclosures came into play.
3: Is that, is that the Fisher that Buffett always says he's part Fisher, part Graham? Yeah, is Fisher the was
4: like the ultimate, he is like a growth at any price, like you pay whatever to get some slice of future growth. So he could have said that, but yeah, I, I only know this off memory because it was all in like my Sunday reads of two weeks ago, but I can send you the nice. paper. There's a guy who literally looks at the evolution of valuation and in equity investing since like the 18th century.
3: And what? Go ahead.
2: Yeah. And no, I was just going to ask him outside of the obvious manias and bubbles and some of the anecdotes that uh, we're all sort of familiar with to some extent going back and through history, what's some of the, what are some of the stories that you've learned that have kind of captured your imagination that are not as well known about this, uh, the history of finance and just the, the, I guess, investors behavior, I think, which would dovetail a little bit with what we're experiencing today.
4: Yeah. I think that one of the most interesting kind of themes that clearly replays itself throughout history and is actually one that you can notice like reoccurring is this idea, which I've written about, um, called the three eyes, which is the innovators, and then imitators, and then idiots. And again, like I already told you, the 1690s tech bubble story, there is the innovator who goes out and finds the treasure, comes back, crazy returns. And there's an explosion in diving technology companies that are trying to imitate that success. And then the idiots are the groups of those companies that were just total frauds that had no intention of actually ever producing a piece of technology, but they just claimed to have a patent and went and like issued stocks to gullible investors that bought them up. Um, and in the 1820s, you have similar dynamic. Um, there was an explosion in Latin American mining companies because there was a, uh, the, like, just a kind of period of succession or independence from Spain in a bunch of these former colonies. And once that happened, a lot of these new country or newly independent countries came to England for financing and there were some successful kind of mining exploration companies, but also British investors started just snatching up the much higher yielding debt of these countries. Because again, at that time, after the Napoleonic Wars, the interest rates on bonds in the UK fell dramatically. And so there was a hunt for yield, which is a very common theme in history. And it got to the point where Amidst all this kind of mania, people were getting excited about the successful mining stocks um, that had kind of IPO'd so far. There was a guy named Gregor McGregor who invented a fake country and successful. Stalled name. Gregor
3: yeah, McGregor. It oh,
4: Scottish that's yeah. what I want to hear. Those now you're obscure with stories. Us. Yeah, it does not get more Scottish than Gregor McGregor. Um, and He had fought in the Venezuelan War of Independence. I don't remember why, like he was there, but (laughs) for some reason he was involved in it, even though super Scottish guy. And after the war ended, he just kind of kept sailing around. And eventually he happened upon, I think it was off the coast of Honduras, like a small uninhabited island that was just jungle. Like it was not in any way developed, but he decided that that island was going to be the country of Poye and he decided that he was the grand prince. And so he sailed back to London. And when he arrived there, it was in a period where again, English investors were just snatching up high yielding debt of other countries like Peru, whatever. And to be fair to the average British investor in 1825, like how are you gonna know that that country is fake, but other like you're not gonna have been to any of them. You probably don't know anyone that's ever been there. So sounds like it could be from that region, Poirier. I mean, I don't know. And um, so he goes back and he tells everyone in London about this utopia that has a parliamentary building that's beautiful, a cathedral, an opera house, and like you know mines that are just brimming with gold and silver. And it's just a jungle, that's it. And <laughs> he floats like, I think it got up to the equivalent of like a billion dollars worth of uh, debt in today's terms. He floated on the London Stock Exchange and he actually convinced like 300 Scottish settlers to actually buy up land and go like move there, and I think like six ships arrived eventually, and 80 percent of the people that went died. Like it was just the worst like, in history. The consequences yeah.
1: of a fraud back then were much dire, yeah. much more dire than they are today. Yeah. <laughs> like that is wow brutal. So, yeah, what's and crazy so, about all these stories is how like everything has changed. And yet nothing has changed.
4: Yeah. And so for me, it's like when I was reading about that and, you know, later you have uh, the British bicycle mania in the 1890s where 670 bicycle companies went public in two years. Like we think that like the EV boom now is crazy. Imagine if in two years, 670 electric vehicle companies went public, like it'd be insane. And again this was after a kind of technological revolution had occurred which sounds crazy because we're talking about bicycles but it went from those massive like penny farthings where you had the huge front tire and then like the tiny back tire they figured out how to make the modern looking bicycle and the british public just fell in love with them and so production and new bicycle companies just ramped up but then again after there was some initial success and good returns in the existing public uh bicycle companies Then as investors were searching for more shares of these bicycle companies, there was always going to be a group of kind of stock promoters that were more than willing to just come up with new bicycle companies and float shares to take advantage of the situation. And so you had this boom and obviously almost all of those companies did not produce a product or produce anywhere near the returns of the first movers. And you had fraud that was rampant. And so I compared this recently, this kind of trend of innovator imitator idiot to electric vehicle mania this year where I don't think it's a coincidence that all these new EV startups and SPACs and everything have come after at a lag because that's always how it happens. Tesla's like ridiculous soaring returns earlier in the year. And so it's also like a name brand company that you don't really have to be into the markets to know you, everyone knows what a Tesla is and sees it and thinks Elon Musk is great. And so once they hear the stocks gone up like hundreds of percent, they think, "Oh, where can I find the next, you know, Tesla and Turn Nikola and all these other uh, EV companies?" And so that kind of three eyes progression definitely played out faster. And there's more to go, but like Nikola is obviously the idiot in this in this uh, kind of progression, and it only took a matter of months
2: for that to kind of play out. Is it Nikola or the investors that are buying? Into that's nice true. <laughs> I guess it's a bit of both. But it's it
1: just the, the how it all rhymes, right? I just love the idea of of uh, bicycles being high tech, you know. Yeah. Uh, and this it's like in Cle- uh, what you know what in your recent article on the Cleveland stock market, how they were the the VCs of the time, yeah. and the companies that that we're talking about were all utility companies. Right, yeah. so just electricity and service. It's the most like, boring sure. stocks that you, that exist today. Back yeah. then, with the you know the shit, they yeah, were, they were, that's what you wanted to invest in. And what's so that's, like that's crazy it.
4: about that article, which I didn't realize, is again they were the VCs of the day, and it was the Silicon Valley, um, which is crazy because it's Cleveland. But um, yeah, <laughs> the VCs at that time. The differences in investing, I mean, today, no one would think of VCs and associate that with dividends, like no VC investors looking for dividends. But major distinction they made at the time was that even though there was a Cleveland Stock Exchange that was founded, it was basically only established because brokers in the Cleveland area at the time were trying to figure out some way to take advantage of like all this innovation and success going on in the area. But most companies didn't actually float on the exchange. Which today would be you know the kind of logical next step. That's the exit for a VC fund. But they said at the time that most of these VC investors, the way that they were looking to recoup their money was through long-term business growth and recouping their investment through dividends, which was just like total opposite <laughs> of what you would expect today. So I, I find that fascinating.
1: They didn't and know how Cleveland
4: to back was back now
3: we do. <laughs> Cleveland was a hub. Cleveland was probably the richest place in America through the through the robber baron era, wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, where there's money.
1: Yeah. But what was interesting there from the article was that uh, New York Stock Exchange was dominated by railroad companies at the time. Yeah. And while the Cleveland Stock Exchange was dominated by the railroad companies in the beginning, t- 10 years later, it only had 15% railroad and the rest were these type of, you know, innovative utility companies. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I think, uh... you know,
4: the most famous one was Brush Electric. And it at one point had built like 88% of the nation's arc like lamps that would you have like on street walks and stuff. And so, yeah, totally boring companies, but innovative for the day.
3: What are the other, are there any other initial conditions that, that you have noticed in your studies regarding, you know, sort of the manias and the fraud? I mean, the, the three eyes i's, is sort of, I guess a really big success. The divers, um, the Teslas. I think that you know there was the diamond fields resources. This big discovery of nickel in in Canada, and then and then BRIEX came after that. And everyone was so hungry in Canada for the next big discovery. They were ripe for a for a potential fraud. Um, is there is there any other like easy money? I guess we've we've sort of said okay, post war you've got this easy bit of money so you've got excess liquidity running is is there any other commonalities that you that you've sort of pulled together as you've weaved this uh, tapestry
4: i'd say that's definitely the most kind of easily recognizable one is war and then following war government like trying to refinance and just figure out how to pay off the debt so that rates are low and investors are forced to kind of search for income and returns elsewhere, which inevitably pushes them into riskier assets and comes forces out them to that. the casino tables. For, yeah, it's easy for people to start companies that are not necessarily uh, sound companies to invest in, and so you see that. And then also, a lot of times there's some sort of new financial contraption, like a investment trust or SPAC, some
3: donation. sort of financial innovation.
4: innovation yeah. yeah.
3: And so, and so, yeah, go ahead. Talk about that because that 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 I think that's
4: well with SPACs. Even there's like sauce. examples of SPACs going back to the South Sea Bubble. Um, one of the interesting things at that time was that basically to be able to have tradable shares and go public, you had to receive a royal patent from the government and a royal charter, and mm-hmm. unless you had that, it was illegal to have any kind of tradable shares. And so what some kind of savvy financiers were doing was buying companies that had an existing charter and then just totally doing something else. And so I don't know, I kind of made the comparison that's like a SPAC, one of them was like a York water company where it was literally just handling like waterways and boring stuff like that for a city. I I think it was York. But um, the guy who then acquired the company decided that, I can't remember exactly, but basically something had happened in Scotland where there was suddenly kind of all of these grand estates that were vacant. And his plan was to basically sell them like, buy up those properties, sell them, and then use that to fund some type of new weird, like, annuity product that he was gonna sell. But this was all being done by a water company. And so it's just like <laughs> this idea where I'm gonna buy this company and then do something completely different with it, which seems kind of analogous to today, where I'm gonna have oh, yeah. to do nothing. Like, you don't know what it's gonna do. You just trust me that I'm gonna turn it into a totally different company and it's gonna work out well.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean yeah. it's it's interesting how this has been around for a while, but again, it's like what catches fire. It seems like spacs are catching fire. I remember talking about spacs when I first got into the industry. Yeah, and, and, and nobody can make them work, and all of a sudden there's this fervor for for spacs, and every spac seems to be fantastic and amazing, and everybody's investing money into it. What what's happening today that's forcing those spacs to to be so, um, so coveted.
4: So I think that, I mean, I definitely think obviously that there is a ton of just mania going on with SPACs, but I've evolved my thinking a little bit to the point where I understand it more because Michael Mobson put out like a insanely good, as always, 80-page report. I can't remember the title, but it was just talking about the kind of progression from public to private markets over the last yeah, decades. And it was
1: a great, great piece.
4: Yeah, and once I read that, I started thinking about it more and it kind of made more sense because for the last decade or two, definitely within the last decade, there's just been like, constantly the idea, one, you have a couple different trends. One, less companies are going public. They're staying private longer. And all like the big institutions are moving into private equity, private debt. And that was for a long time, like sexiest place to be, which obviously for the average retail investor, you can't access that. And with VC, so many of the kind of flashy hot tech companies are all staying private longer. They don't want to go public. And it wasn't until recently that some of them started going public, but so for the average retail investor, you've had a winnowing pool of public listed, publicly listed stocks to choose from and try and you know generate excess returns. And then also this whole time you're watching this whole like side of the market that you can't access be the where like all the alpha is and all the kind of like sexy tech names are. And you can't get any of that action. And so with SPACs, I feel like part of it is just the thrill of finally being able to access in some way this private market because indirectly you can basically invest in kind of like a, I don't know, Bush League VC fund where you're just giving them money and then betting that they can find a cool, like future successful private company and then bring it to market but obviously, spacs are very different than VC funds. But if you look at it through that lens, I feel like it makes sense why retail investors are just so crazy about spacs. It's like VC for $1. the
1: masses.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, the issuing companies DTC, are also going to VC DTC play. <laughs> that's right. I'm sure the issuing companies are also eager to bypass the middlemen, pay less fees, going public. The regulatory hurdles for them as well, uh, I, I believe, are much much lower. Yeah. Uh, than than a, than a proper IPO, so I mean, it's 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 the era of easy money, right? Which is kind of what I wanted to ask you, like taking a couple steps back outside of the sort of equity world and and trying to get a sense of where we might be in drawing analogies through history. I mean, you were talking about how wars usually beget low interest rates. Uh, but we find ourselves to be in the lowest point in interest rates in history, without any war. What do you mean? Uh, There's
3: a war on a virus. We are under attack right, right
2: now. Right, but we were there before, right? The, va- the 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 pandemic was the catalyst, but we, we're 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 experiencing something that's been going on for the past thirty four <laughs> well, years. So I, I,
3: sound that's fine.
2: Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) So what kind of uh, analogies would you draw? I mean, obviously the 1918 year sort of is where everybody would go for the Spanish flu, but trying to understand in terms of the system, I mean, a a lot of people talk about a paradigm shift and an exhaustion of the system. How how might you draw a parallel through, through other points in history? It's an
4: interesting point that I haven't looked into as much, but now after this, I'm going to, because I feel like with today, the conversation around rates and inflation is dominated by the kind of technological innovations that have kept prices low for key kind of categories because of how much, I don't know, productivity and technology has progressed. And so we're also having less war. So it'd be interesting to look back and see how much of kind of technology has played a role in periods where rates were low and whether that's masked by just the constant war for centuries but i don't have a good answer to that but it's interesting you know you
3: know what would be interesting about. too is how much has war had an implication on technology
1: development yeah well, and and nothing motivates you know that huge and yeah
3: nothing motivates like it like a deadline of having to survive as a as a tribe well think um, about the in order technology, to build technology
1: let's talk about the, this war this covid war But if you actually think about it from that perspective, the amount of communal mental energy just focused on solving one problem has created, I think, new tech that would have been unpalatable to discover uh, this uh, this ability to create this mRNA um, vaccine. So that's been in the works.
2: For seven years, I was reading, it's been,
1: and and they fix and, and when I, once everybody focuses on one thing, like they focused on the atomic bomb, like they're focusing on the vaccine today, you create these these side businesses or you know new technology that's going to feed the industry for years to come, right? So, it is it is kind of like a war in tech in that perspective, and there's going to be some massive winners out of this if there aren't already. Speaking no, of
4: Warren Tech, not I not saw Facebook is running ads today talking about helping small businesses fight Apple's like terrible policies, which is very ironic <laughs> campaign for Facebook yeah. to take.
3: So, so we do have a uh, a question uh, from uh, Latoro Parada on what makes a bubble pop. So, we we have talked a little bit about you know how how they form. What are the, What are sort of the initial conditions that create this huge? Um, bubble opportunity to prosper and get hurt. What are the conditions where you start to see that uh, fall apart? What, what should investors be looking at? Are there any examples that you might point to today that that might look a little uh, bubbly, if you will?
4: <laughs> um, I feel like in history that a lot of the time it's either, I mean, it could be one of few things, but one of the Um, obvious answers is and kind of unexpected hike in rates where suddenly financing becomes more difficult and companies become unable to pay their debts. But also in history, there's a very common trend of whatever the new kind of sexy investment is of the day. There's often one large bank that is way too levered and exposed to that new investment. And if something goes wrong, even if it is related to rates being hiked and then that company or even that sector that their one bank is heavily exposed to kind of falters and fails, then that brings down the system. Um, like in the 1870s, that happened with, um can't remember the name of the bank, but with the railways where it was great. And again, in the 1890s, in 1890, there was the bearing crisis where even history repeated within 70 years, again, British investors were just flocking to high-yielding emerging market debt because rates were low and they were going into Latin America again for these high-yielding... Don't businesses.
3: trust those Latinos.
4: <laughs> it's
2: always Argentina. It's always <laughs> no, it <is. laughs>
3: Argentina. And, and I love, it. It I love Brazil those, too, right it away. Like it's Argentina. Argentina. <laughs>
1: first of all, <laughs> you, first you, you mispronounce our question asker's name. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> so let me just fix that problem. And, and then after you do that, you, you rail on us, South Americans? I didn't I didn't rail. providing high-yield investment. <laughs>
2: for on, income.
3: So. We're providing Finance. income for retirees, if you don't mind. That's right. we helping, we're helping once out you, Yeah, it's only it's been once or twice totally. for Brazil. It's
1: Thank something you. like
4: 14. I actually might have. Yeah, I have... Give me two seconds. Getzman had an article, this professor from Yale, he's like the godfather of financial history. And he had one talking about like modern portfolio theory for um, the British investor in the 1890s. And some of the yields on these were just like crazy. I think British bond yields at the time were offering like 2.2%. And these... Uh, like Latin American bonds were offering 14% or something nuts. And it's just like, well, this is
1: obvious. What?
3: That was like four yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally Brazil, within the last Brazil's five years. Great year.
1: example of this, right? Like this idea of like you have, you correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, right? But you guys, investors in our, in Brazil were getting paid ridiculous yields on these tips. In the 90s. Product. Treasury in the 90s. protective bonds. So every every Argentine just owned bonds that yielded sixteen to twenty percent for years, and so there was no point in being an, a thoughtful asset manager and saying, "Listen, I think if I try really, 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 really hard, I might give you a four to six percent annualized rate of return." Like, just get, get out of my country. And today, what are the what are the yields that are in Brazil right now?
2: Oh, it's it's quite low. Uh... It's it's mid to low uh, single digit. I, th- I think it's like prime is like 3%. A couple of years before I left for Toronto, a couple of years before I moved, it was around 14. Right. But if you go back to the 1990s, so not that far ago, it was up in the 30% range, right. 30 to 40% oh, yes. range. Because
1: tips, right? These are no, tips. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, talking I'm, 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 I'm talking about the
2: nominal. I'm talking about the nominal. So the tips in Brazil, they do have a, a different dynamic. And 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 they are slightly different than the 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 North American tips that we're we're familiar with. But one of the interesting things that I believe uh, I remember reading was that it, it's often the case that when the majority of the holders of the the uh, sovereign debt are local holders, it's much more it's it's much less likely that there's going to be a default. So the fact of the matter is, Argentina particularly was always issuing for foreign holders, and it's much easier for you to default if you're not going to be incurring the wrath of your local citizenry, right? They (laughs) they were all across the ocean and back in the day, it was much, much harder for them to come and enforce. So Argentina has defaulted, I think nine times in the last 150 years or something crazy like that. I'm sure Jamie would have that.
4: I don't have that and I'm bummed I can't find that in my stack, the thing I was looking for, but it was was like 14%, I don't remember what country, but in a Latin American country, 1890 was the first time that Argentina Faulted on its debt, and that was
1: <laughs> sorry, but um, no, that, no. Listen, uh, I'm not Argentine. Go
2: no for we're not argentines here. You, you rail away at
1: them. Yeah. Always rail on the Argentines. That brought down
4: <laughs> um, Barings Bank in 1890. So that's why it's called the Barings Crisis. Um, and it like really just brought the whole system to a collapse. And that was like the kind of first instance of um, kind of EM crisis.
3: It's hard to it's hard to fathom though, especially as the system has gotten more and more integrated with larger and larger financial players, that it's hard to step away from the poker table. If all your buddies are making money and financial innovation is occurring, like how, how do you how do you rationalize to your shareholders that you're not gonna participate, that you're not gonna take the bonus, that you're not gonna be involved? I yeah. don't know.
4: My favorite in, quote in,
1: in, uh, the
4: Yeah. One of my favorite quotes was from The Economist, I think in like the 1860s. And it said, uh, with good information and cheap money, a man can go broke in a week. <laughs> 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 I feel like that's very relevant for today. That's Whenever great. You, think you have an edge and there's cheap money. The <laughs> did,
3: did you ever find, um, I mean, so we're talking about sort of these varying degrees of, of, I guess, bubbles. But did you ever come across or can you think of any innovations that were truly spectacular but didn't encounter? A bubble necessarily? Is there a thing like that 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 just flies into the radar where we're not looking for it?
4: I'm sure there is, and I'll remember it as soon as we get off this call. But yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there are a lot of to kind of avoid your question because I don't have a great answer. Oh no,
3: no, I'm Yeah,
4: there are a I lot of bubbles that led to. I mean, there are like technology that produced a bubble, but the after effects were still a huge benefit to society like the tech bubble kind of oh, even the railroads and yeah that was going to be my parallel um so there's interesting examples like that where it wasn't just a totally kind
3: of yeah it wasn't the scuba thing. gear it wasn't the scuba gear boom of 1693
4: yeah. i don't know how much was. that led to but uh, <laughs> well, the railways definitely were a huge kind of obviously it laid the infrastructure for transportation in America and the tech bubble did the same with internet infrastructure. Um, yeah. so there, yeah, there can sometimes be like lasting benefits of bubbles, uh, despite what happens to Lovely. some investors. Have, have
3: you ever, have you ever also looked at the, so the robber barons were the last time we had this kind of concentration of wealth. Um, you know, and so you have these technological revolution, industrial revolution. Is there anything else like that you've seen through history where these innovations are accruing to a small number of people, or is there any correlation there, causation there, or what, any 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 notices of that type of thing through history? Or
4: Yeah. So um, I think it's kind of related. Um, our co-chief investment officer at OSAM, Chris Meredith, And I worked out, I helped him, he wrote the paper. Um, But I did a little bit of help on the research for the history stuff. Um, The paper's called Value is Dead. And it was looking back at using Carlota Perez, she's a professor, I think at Cornell, but um, her technological revolutions framework. And she has this whole like progression where I can't remember the stages, but basically the way it begins in each technological revolution is there's the innovation and then there's kind of wide not widespread adoption but fast like frenzy of adoption of that new technology in whatever kind of sector it's relevant to or whatever sector it was kind of born out of and then once word spreads wider the financial capital and actual productive capital so the actual companies starts to decouple and that's where you get the bubble and then there is usually a turning point which is a crash of some sorts And then after that, that technology kind of gets diffused across broader sectors. And then it's in that stage, we were looking at it through the lens of value versus growth. And the first stage, that's obviously where growth dominates value. But then after the crash, when that technology gets diffused across the kind of broader economy, that's when value stocks tend to outperform. And so what we looked at is the um, boom in the combustion engine, in the early 1900s and up until it started, the period we looked at in like 1908, I think was the Model T when that came out. And the innovation though was the internal combustion engine and all of that kind of excitement and growth was within the manufacturing sector. If you look at the kind of portfolio breakdown by sector of what a value and growth portfolio would have looked like in that day, like growth portfolio is just like all manufacturing. so once you had this boom in auto stocks and it was all based around internal combustion engine that made things cheaper, Henry Ford's Model T, like the price just progressively kept going down and down. The railroads, which were heavily um, exposed in value, like value portfolios, that's what they were dominantly holding. They suffered <laughs> heavily because suddenly trucking was a cheaper option for companies to transport their goods. and So value just really lagged growth. And during that period, because it's all concentrated that growth in one sector, there are a lot of oligopolies and kind of monopolies that form. And then after the crash though, railroads adopted that internal combustion technology and they switched in like the early thirties to uh, it like called the dieselization of railroads. And that brought their price point down. So it was more competitive than trucks. And there was a famous example of like Southern Railway, I think in the 15 years before the crash, which was the turning point, it had like underperformed by 80% or something. And then once they made that switch and adopted the new technology, it went on for like 8,000% over the next 15 years. And that was pretty common across railroad stocks that adopted the new technology. And so today the comparison we made is, we've all heard the phrase like software, every company is a software company. Where it's not just like tech companies that are using software heavily, especially in COVID, so many traditional brick and mortar retail stores have been forced to adopt an e commerce presence because otherwise they literally couldn't sell anything during the lockdown. So it's
1: table stakes right now.
3: Sorry?
2: But
4: it's table stakes right now.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you're sorry. echoing for some reason.
4: So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, I don't know if like targets isn't going 8,000% in the next 15 years, but it'll be interesting to see like Domino's, that stock has crushed it. And a lot of it is due to the delivery um, like network that they've set up and the technology behind that. And so it's just interesting to see that like diffusion across the economy of more previously just tech dominant technology.
3: So, so where are awesome. we in that in that process with respect to blockchain?
4: <laughs> I don't know, and I am not the person to ask about crypto.
3: Come, <laughs> Come on, on, you got the framework. Break it down for us. Speculate.
1: Let's stick with uh, stick with cars for a second. So, one of the questions is uh, something to the effect of: When are we buying? Who's buying puts on Tesla? Uh, you wrote an article uh, maybe last year. I, I don't even remember, but it uh, it talked a little bit about Tesla, the manufacturer, and was it Tesla itself that had these constant innovations that he was getting financing for that never came to fruition. Can you tell us yeah, tell me so, that story? That's,
0: yeah. The motor that motor
1: that company. people think are there. Yeah. there hasn't been a thing, guys. Everybody relax. <laughs>
4: there's a couple of interesting things with electric cars and the story you're referring to is the Keeley motor company, which is, I think that was, oh, it must've been like the 1880s or 1890s, but the electric vehicle is not new. The electric vehicle, the first one, that was produced was produced 50 years before the internal combustion engine. So it was actually the original car. So it's not like a new thing. It's actually just making like a century long comeback story. Um, By 1912, there were, I think, 36,000 electric cars on the road. Henry Ford's wife drove an electric car. Um, And I wrote a paper about or somebody reads about this in August, but they're like Baker Electrics, Jay Leno, actually a couple of years ago, he has one of course, because he's Jay Leno. Um, And he took it out for like a test drive and was showing everything about it. It was a real 1909 Baker Electric. But um, as these, again, because there was excitement around driving and new automobiles, there were a lot of fraudulent companies. And so one of them was the Keeley Motor Company. And this wasn't related to cars, but it was still a kind of I can't remember what he called it. I think it was the perpetual motion machine. The perpetual was,
1: the perpetual yeah. motion <laughs> machine. That's right.
4: And it was this like revolutionary new type of engine. And he claimed that off a single quart of water, that a steamship could be powered like for a return trip from New York to Liverpool and back off a single quart of water. Like that's all it would need. And um obviously investors who believed him were like, oh wow, this is the next thing. So they invested. And for 26 years, he kept up the ruse and kept just announcing like other exciting projects whenever investors would start demanding, you know, evidence that he was ever going to produce a product or something related to this perpetual motion machine. He never brought anything to market in 26 years and they didn't figure out his kind of lies and just network of deceit until he died and they went through his laboratory and they saw all the like tubes leading nowhere and how he had fooled all the Good investors and then, yeah it's like the same sort of kind of tactics i don't know i guess you could accuse elon musk of, of i mean with elon musk he obviously has built a product and brought something to market but just the tactics of you know every time he didn't meet something he said he was going to meet is like but this. No, no, other no. Thing, like- if you
3: take the body <laughs> panel off you see a nissan leaf underneath
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right i just love it because the name perpetual motion machine is almost probably 90 percent of its success right yeah has a lot great marketing great salesperson that's that's really doesn't look like a great salesperson right do i want to buy puts on tesla hell no are you kidding me with that type of branding it's <laughs> suicide right you guys might all be right but there's no way just their stock price is a perpetual there's, motion machine. are guys that are way too yeah. good at, at having the perpetual motion of their stock price going up.
3: <laughs> I'm immediately shorting some shares, calling my broker for a borrow.
1: <laughs> a classic Philbick. Like, do you have to do everything that I don't do <laughs> not
2: so, with with all your financial history perspective, uh, I know you don't want to dive too deep into the Bitcoin uh, uh, craze or the crypto mania, if you want to call it that. But we might draw a few parallels. Uh, everyone thinks about the tulip mania, but we we are experiencing some. No, you're shaking your head. Well, no, he's got some talk comments on the tulip mania. You can't just yeah, throw no.
3: tulip mania around yeah. like that. That's <laughs> not. That's not even the... dude. He's done the research. We're gonna first of all let's fact check you
4: this is now this is an area where I can confidently fact check because I know <laughs> that I have the data on my side. That's so it. basically, you don't know what you just walked into. So I'm I'm sorry, and you're gonna you're gonna regret mentioning tulip mania. <laughs> um, but <laughs> now you're gonna be like, why is this guy talking about tulip mania for five minutes? Um, so the book that everybody loves, Charles McKay's uh, "Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds," or whatever exact title it is, is quackery. Interesting work. I mean, it's not all wrong, but like so much of it is just based on totally terrible historical source work. So what happened is during tulip mania, there is no question that there was like ridiculous buying and selling of tulips at what we would consider high prices. But first, what you should consider is compare that with like the art market. I mean, people are buying and selling paintings and some of them, like modern art, you see it as like, how is that worth $8 million or whatever? So it's all kind of relative. And if you view tulips at the time, which is how they viewed them as like this luxury asset, because it was all coming from this new trade trade routes that were being opened up and these tulips were coming through and it was like a luxury kind of thing to be interested in, just like artwork today or sculptures, whatever. And
2: Scarcity, right? right. They're all hinging on scarcity,
4: and just the like beauty, and it's something that like really the only luxury class were buying. But what the problem came from is that the kind of merchant class was becoming interested in tulips, and they began kind of cultivating them and became like a popular trade. Mm And the rich elite did not like it that suddenly these merchants were starting to make money off of this and kind of progress up the societal like status chain. And it was really just like Ugh, new money. Like these people are, you know, we're landed gentry. Like these people are not classy. Like they should not be in the same social rank as us just because they started making money off tulips. And so what happened was this wealthy elite class started circulating all these pamphlets that were just propaganda, saying things like, you know, these merchant men are trading tulips all day at the tavern, like getting blind drunk while their families and kids starve at home because they're losing all their money on tulips. And all this was circulated just to get the general public's um, kind of like view of the tulip trade to be negative and have a kind of blowback against this whole trade. And that's where you deflate get the, the bubble.
2: Money. What were they trying to deflate the bubble? Essentially, yeah, they just didn't like the
4: fact that these merchants that were predominantly making money off of this trade, because they were the ones actually like running the tulip kind of market, like tulip trade, that they were suddenly being able to make money and kind of move up the social rank because they had this money to be involved with the old money, like elite class. And so, yeah, they tried to put a stop to this trade in general by circulating these pamphlets. And then that's where you get the stories of like men committing suicide because they went broke like, and bankrupt uh, trading tulips. Or they were talking about like the story of um, tulips trading for the price of houses that comes from these pamphlets. And it was all purposely over the top and apocryphal in almost all cases because it was propaganda geared to make people say, this is insanity. The problem is, is that Charles McKay, he based almost all his work and um, kind of research on tulip mania from, I think it was an 18th century German author who sourced all of his stuff from these pamphlets. But he got those pamphlets and interpreted them as fact and just said, like, everything described in this pamphlet happened. And so he wrote about it and then that passed down to charles mckay and now that's why today everyone thinks that these insane stories are true and they're not and anne goldgar who's actually a professor at my alma mater king's college london until this year she's now at the university of southern california she wrote a book called tulip mania which is an amazing book and she basically in much better words describes what i just described and in her research like i think in Charles McKay's book, he claims that one tulip was traded like 40 times or something. I mean, and she spent years in Dutch archives looking through and the longest string of transactions she ever found for a single tulip was five. And so like, there's so many of these stories and,
2: so the price patterns that uh, are commonly believed uh, to, be, to have happened and and that's why I brought it up because I was trying to see whether you might have other parallels throughout history of what we're witnessing with crypto and I guess with some of the tech stocks and to maybe trying to get a, a a bit of perspective on that so that price pattern of the tulips is is widely overblown is that it's pretty yeah, much what I mean you're saying. again
4: like there were still some expensive prices being paid for tulips but it is not anywhere Nowhere. near And the other thing is that I haven't read the book in like a year and a half, so I'll probably botch part of this, but the way that many of the contracts worked was you would buy the right, it's like an option, buy the right to pay for that tulip in the spring, but you would enter into the contract in the fall. And essentially what would happen is like, I also am not a horticultural expert, but I think they would like then put the tulips underground, like bury them for the winter, to then dig back up in the spring. And so when you entered into the contract, you were buying the right to buy that tulip, but you might've entered into it at a ridiculously high price, but that by no means meant that anyone actually ever paid that price because come spring, you didn't necessarily buy that tulip. And so a lot of the crazy prices that are listed as having occurred didn't actually happen. But there are some crazy instances where, Like when people knew that they had a particularly um, rare type of tulip, like the color, whatever, and that uh, what it produced would also be valuable and they didn't want it to uh, spread and they wanted that scarcity, they would like poke holes in the bulb while they planted it throughout the winter so that whoever had bought it, when they like brought it up in the spring, it was just like worthless because they had just destroyed it before putting it in the ground without them knowing.
2: So tulips aside, uh, are, are there any other instances throughout history where you can find some crazy price patterns that you can sort of uh, uh, draw an analog with what we're witnessing today to, to, to sort of try to place us within oh, the? Uh, in what? I don't know. You tell me, Mike. No,
3: I'm I'm asking. Crypto. What we're witnessing in what in crypto?
2: Crypto uh, technology. Crypto you know, I'm just wondering. Normal if a, it's just a historical. A normal you don't need to talk your book mike we, we're right?
4: <laughs> i don't know about for crypto i mean but like with the ev stocks i feel like the bicycle boom is a pretty good reference because in the bicycle boom again in all these kind of just manias it's always at a lag the returns are like if you have the returns on one access and then the number of companies starting and going public, it's always at a lag and that's what we're seeing today. It's like Tesla crazy returns and then slight lag uh, boom and new EV companies. Um, Yeah, Bitcoin, I don't have a good one, but the one thing I'd say is that there's there's no shortage of crazy currencies in history. So if you believe that it has value, then that's really all that matters.
1: Did you ever read much about John Law and the Mississippi Company? That was around the same time as the South Sea Bubble, because that yeah. that has a bit more to do with monetary policy as well, right? Because he was the um, the basically the, the central he bank ever, governor of France. Yeah, he was dude. like
4: he was basically like the today. I'm sure someone who knows more about this than me will correct me, but it seemed he was essentially like the Treasury Secretary, the head of the Fed. And like, if he was the CEO of like Goldman Sachs, like
2: he yeah, was just like was, everything.
1: Oh, <laughs> and he was also he was tax
2: collector, wasn't he uh, at one point? But well, he was yeah.
1: he, he was supposed to be like they were looking for for him because he had he had committed a crime in Scotland or Engl- England, I can't remember. So during this whole period, France had basically taken him in and let him run the country. Um, yeah, he was also, a like degenerate gambler. Yeah,
4: and I think. I don't know if he, like, I don't know. I think he might have had an affair with like the Duke's wife. It was something with a Duke. Like he either during a gambling session cheated the Duke or something, or I don't know. But something happened. I felt like the wife was involved <laughs> for some <laughs> reason. I don't know why I'm can remembering that. that. I'm not, I'm, right? but
3: can you even say that?
4: It went south. <laughs> it went south <laughs> for for law and the Duke like. Order, I think he was going to be, he was sentenced to death. And then he escaped from prison and fled to, I think first it was like Amsterdam. And then he came up with his idea for his, what they call John Law's system. He had this whole system and he like pitched it to a couple countries and they all were like, no. And then France, because war, they had just yeah. gotten out of a really uh, expensive war they were very open to the idea of his new, like, magical system that would help them reduce their financial
1: burden and pay off their debt.
3: Didn't it sound like MMT? Yeah. Oh, it's- well,
1: <laughs> no <a> way. I <laughs> mean, he legitimately started printing money, and that's how he financed most of everything, right? Yeah. So- yeah, he set up
4: the Mississippi company, and basically, the scheme was, and parts of it makes sense, or at least. Theoretically, why the government would have been open to this. They, I think the debt that the government needed to pay was at something like, say, it was a 4% yield or something. That was the debt that they needed to pay from financing the war. And the Mississippi Company essentially, the scheme was they offered investors to be able to pay with the government debt that they held, pay for Mississippi Company stock. And then the Mississippi Company would lend the proceeds to the government at like a two percent rate or something, which so it of brought down the costs for the government dramatically. And then the just like real linchpin though is that people needed to pay for these shares with their existing government debt, and that would reduce the amount of debt. But that was like where all the shenanigans with convincing people to buy it um, and John Law doing crazy things to keep the price elevated started happening. But there was one time where people started getting um, skittish about the fact that there was not this amount of gold that Law claimed that there was backing these uh, bank notes. He was circulating and pumping. That's right. Uh, what he did is he hired, like, a bunch of uh, homeless people to parade through the streets with, like, axes and, like, pickaxes and, like, all this mining equipment on their back. Like, as if they had just come from, like, the, the mines and just to, like, reinstill the people's confidence in the fact that there's a ton of gold. Like, look at all these people coming back with all this gold. Like, clearly there's gold. Look at it. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah no in, at the old last, old, in the last, no it's gold my favorite books.
1: <laughs> I don't. I think I read that uh, the book on John Locke ten years ago, and to the day, it's one of my, my favorite stories. It's like it's a short. I don't know which book I read. I'm sure there's many books on on John Locke. Yeah, but th- this one was. <laughs> it's just a fascinating thing that happened at a high level. Like you're dealing with government com- companies, yeah. individuals, manias, and back then, I guess it was easier for one man to do it. But I could easily create parallelisms as to the orchestration currently between big companies big banks big governments money printing and trying to keep that perpetual money machine going so and what's highly recommended that, read?
4: yeah no it, it, his story is crazy but what's really insane too is that that was in like 1719 entering 1720 right. and british and french obviously have a history of not getting along very well and uh maybe looking condescendingly at their neighbors but so the whole time this mississippi fiasco was going on the british were like look these french idiots like their whole systems in disarray and then like six months later they do the same exact scheme just slightly different with the south sea like literally the same thing like all right give us your debt and we'll give you south sea stock and like
3: but don't you no, think that safe. that's the key? That that's what does it. You see it done over there, and you're not going to miss yeah. the next one.
4: But what's crazy is that they saw it implode, and then they still are like full speed ahead. Our <laughs> only way out,
3: yeah. MMT. It's our only way out. So, Try to do it. So, so Jamie, so you you've maybe if you can give a um, give a quick summary of your investor amnesia course, and where people can find it. And and maybe just highlight like what's your favorite part of of that uh, of course journey that you've that you've um, uh, built and uh, offered the the universe for its consumption.
4: Yeah, so I just launched this course um, late last month, and if you've enjoyed basically any of the stories today, then you will like the course because they're all every bit of information that I got today was from the people that are teaching this course. The course is called Bubbles, Manias, and Fraud, and it has seven outside lecturers from a mixture of professional investors, uh, TV pundits, to actual academic um, and highly respected financial historians. And they are all teaching one topic that they are particularly knowledgeable on related to bubbles, manias, or fraud. And if you are interested in the course, it's $99, but if you put in the code history rhymes at checkout, it'll be 10% off. Um, my That's favorite- That's thanks to resolve
3: rips, everyone. That's thanks <laughs> to resolve rips.
4: <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter, you can see it in my uh, pinned tweet. I'm at investor amnesia. But if you also just search investor amnesia course, it's the first option. Um, and my favorite would probably be Jim Chanos, obviously legendary short seller did a masterclass lecture. He teaches a course at Yale called the history of financial fraud. And um, in this course, he does the history of US fraud. He calls it the the greatest hits of corporate fraud in the US, 1983 to 2008. And what the course is, is I think it's like an hour or the lecture is an hour and 20 minutes broken up into smaller videos. And it's the world's most famous short seller literally walking through each case study of his like most famous shorts and examples of fraud since 1983. So he walks through in each case, like Baldwin United was his first and he goes through saying what kind of led him to digging deeper into that company, what they were doing wrong what the instance of fraud was, but he covers Baldwin United, um, Enron obviously WorldCom, Tyco, Boston Chicken, Commodore, Lehman, AIG, et cetera. And it's that one's just crazy because like nowhere else are you gonna get that sort of master class lecture from an expert like that.
1: It's worth the nine. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. good too. Yeah. I got Sorry? like the South Sea Bubble series and the um, you know, the five yeah. crashes it's and
4: so yeah like everything i said about the south sea bubble um william getzman who i referenced earlier as the godfather of financial history um he is well and truly the goat um he has a long conversation with me on the south sea bubble and mississippi company um there's a lecture on the brewery bubble which we didn't talk about but that's when like 300 um brewers went public in the 1890s after guinness went public in 1886 and uh there's talk also bicycle mania the 1690s tech bubble i talked about ann murphy teaches a lecture on that um railway mania got a lecture on that basically everything um so definitely check it out
1: great yeah and the goal is really i guess to the more you know about your history hopefully the less you repeat it no it's a different very difficult thing to do
4: I will um, say that, like, I feel like it's easier uh, to not get swept up in manias if you read about so many examples of manias. Like, obviously, it still happens, or we wouldn't keep having them. But
1: I personally how do you, how do you that differentiate
3: you see... between the bubble and the true
1: innovative genius that creates that, a, a new way. His book again. A opportunity. <laughs> No, but that's that's a great I'm point. Not, not I was just, I was um, I was reading a quote from Melanchandera Dara <laughs> yesterday. Uh, That said, man operates in a fog. And I'm paraphrasing here. I don't remember exactly, but it's man operates in a fog and he stumbles down a path through life. But when he looks back, he sees the man, he sees the path, but no fog. Right? It's bang on. The goal here is try to recognize by looking at history that there's a fog, right? There's a fog. Understand the fog is a real thing. And, uh, and see if you can, you know, recognize a bit more of the mistakes that we've seen from people at all levels to be able to. That's a much
4: better better analogy than the one I use. I, I like tend to think of history as a compass where it's not like a GPS or roadmap where you, like you said, don't know exactly where everything's going to go In the future, just because you looked at the past, but directionally, you can at least point yourself in the right direction by understanding what's happened previously.
3: I think uh, for for nine ninety five, Rodrigo will allow
1: you to use that and add it to the <laughs> end of your course. Ninety nine ninety five. And if you Poor put the code, oh, that. if you put code Rod the best, I will. <laughs> <them>. <laughs> I will personally write you a holiday card. <laughs> Awesome, Jamie. All right, honestly, anything else, it's gentlemen? Been great. It's been great, uh, seeing your growth since the day that we first spent a uh, solid hour hiking with uh March for the Fallen and what you've been able to accomplish in such a short period of time. Keep it up, awesome content. You know, if you're not following Jamie, you should definitely do that. Yeah, Toot sweet, and uh, and I'm gonna sign up for the course right now, I'm not even gonna ask for the discount.
4: <laughs> well thank you thank you guys so much for having me on and yeah it's, uh, it seems like ages ago that we did that hike what a day Crazy. but
1: memory. You, you
3: guys there and stay in touch eight. thanks again eight or nine months to the next one cheers, cheers. Happy, happy holidays all cheers holidays. Happy, holidays.
1: happy holidays thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, We would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.